Let's open up to the book of Acts this morning in Acts chapter 10, where we picked up where we left off last week. Let me just say this as we get going. I have probably um, not had, there's not been another time in this series where I've more looked forward to the message, but I've also dreaded the message. Um, and primarily because of what Acts 10 entails, if you're familiar with the story, in wrestling with and wrestling through issues of race, um, is, it, wrestling through how the gospel change changes our systems, changes our preferences, how we are to look biblically through the lens of scripture, how we to examine what's going on in the midst of our culture, uh, in the midst of our state, and in the midst of our country. Um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but everything today in 2020, it's political, is it not? We can't watch a sports game. We can't watch the NBA, NFL, MLS, hockey. I think golf may be the only thing so far that's not political, but who really cares about golf, right? Um, I mean, I do a little bit, right, and, and watching it. Everything's political. TV shows, movies, everyone's trying to score points no matter where we go. In particular, as we approach this political season and as we approach the election, it's just going to keep getting worse, right? And so what is our job as Christians and how are we to view those things? How are we to think through when we see people on social media, when we see things in the news, that really everything is political, but everything is, is tied back for some reason at this point um, to, to race. Now, I've talked with some of the, the old timers here in our church, um, some that were around during the Jim Crow era in the 50s or 60s. I even talked to some of our people that were alive when the Civil War was still going on, and they all said, that was a joke, okay? They all said, y'all need to loosen up a little bit, serious subject, but we're gonna laugh a little. Listen, they all said, at least within their lifetimes, they've never seen it quite like this. They've never seen some of the things that we're watching. They've not experienced that, just like many of us in our 20s and, and in our 30s are experiencing some of this stuff for the first time. But here's the question for the believer. Here's the question for the individual that's pursuing Christ and following Christ. How does Jesus view those things? What does the Bible teach about things like race and, and our approach towards brothers and sisters, towards neighbors, and towards those that, that look a little bit different than us and, and think a little bit different than us and, and act and maybe even value things differently than the way in which we value those things? Well, I think Acts 10 gives a response to that. Now, what I'm going to do today, I don't normally do something like this, but what I believe is that one of the things that's informative for us to understand Acts chapter 10, we're going to jump to Genesis chapter 11 and 12 because it's going to speak into some meaning and it's going to help inform our understanding. So I don't normally go to multiple passages, but I'm going to do that today because I think they're connected and I think Genesis 11 and 12 is extremely helpful in trying to understand what's taking place in Acts chapter 10. But I want to begin in Acts 10 and I want to look at verse 1 where Luke begins to describe this instance and he begins to talk about this individual named Cornelius. And it says in verse one of Acts 10, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius and he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. 
So basically, within, if you know Roman history at all, or historians would tell us, that a cohort consisted of about 100 soldiers. And in that group of 100, there was a commander that, that ruled those 100 guys. And this cohort was found in the, in the larger, uh, I guess, area of about 600 other men. And, and it was really found in the context of a legion of about 6,000. So 6,000 men, and then divided up in that 6,000 to 10 units were these groups of 600. And then of that 600, these men were divided up into sections of 100. And the centurion, he was a leader of men. He led 100 men. The, the centurions were basically the, the backbone of the Roman army. They were as brutal as they were and as efficient as they were because of the centurions. And so here we have Cornelius, who's a leader of men. He has a high degree of, if he was a centurion, he had a high level of emotional intelligence. Physically, he was a warrior and he knew how to devastate his opponent. He was well thought of, well respected. He could handle himself in extreme situations. He listened, he followed, he would execute things when his commander told him to. He would do what he was told. He was a faithful man. And so here in Caesarea, this man named Cornelius. And then in verse two, it tells us a little bit about his spiritual life. It says, listen, he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people. And it says he prayed continually to God. One of the reasons why Luke begins to identify the fact that this man was a centurion, but he was also an individual that feared God, is he begins to make a distinction in this moment between Jew and Gentile. The Old Testament teaches us this reality that God comes first to the Jew and then he comes to the Gentile. And so the Jews were partial to those things. So they would hear the message first, they would respond. But then what began to happen is the gospel began to expand to really all people. And so it began to break down barriers of belief and ethnicity and race. And so here, this devout man who feared God, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly sees in a vision an angel of God come in and it says to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring on Simon, who is also called Peter, for he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And so God intervenes in the life of a Gentile and he's gonna send him to a devote, devoted Jewish individual, and he's gonna use this Gentile with no education, uh, no theological training, to change and to shift the mind of a, of a scholar, of, of someone who was well-versed in the context of Old Testament. God using an ordinary man to get in the way and to change the life of an individual, someone whom we know as Peter. At the same time, on the next day in verse nine, it says this, the next day they were on their journey and they were approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And Peter became hungry in verse 10 and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, Peter falls into this trance and he begins to receive this vision from the Lord in verse 11. It says this, and he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now in this trance and in this vision were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat these animals. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or that is unclean. 
And the voice came to him again a second time and what God has made and said this, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up to heaven at once. So Peter has this vision where God tells him to rise up, kill, clean, and eat these animals. Now, Peter was a faithful Jew at this point who had followed God's letter to the law. He was walking in obedience on a regular basis. His worldview taught him through the scriptures in the Old Testament that he was not to ever eat anything that was unclean or defiled. And we get this from passages such as Leviticus chapter 20. You don't have to turn here, but it's on the screen. Where God tells his people, you are to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean. You are to be holy to me, for I have set you apart from all the peoples. And so if you ever read through the Bible systematically and you get to Leviticus, you see all these rules and regulations. And they seem really unnecessary and, and really overkill. But one of the reasons why God does that for his people then was because he says this. Basically, I'm putting you and dropping you in the context of a culture and I want you to be in that culture and to bear witness to my name and for my name's sake. But here's the deal. You are to live in such a way that it is to be distinct from the culture that you find yourself in. God has set apart his people to understand the context in which they live. But he's saying, listen, be there, but don't act like them at every given moment. You are to eat differently and to think differently and you're gonna live a little bit differently in those contexts. And so this was the command and why he gives it in Leviticus 20. Well, God appears to him and he, he gives him this vision and there goes this back and forth three times and eventually Peter comes out of the trance. Now, eventually Cornelius shows up on the scene and he tells Peter later on in the text, listen, I had this vision and this dream to come to you. And Peter's like, I know what you're talking about. And they had this conversation where this Gentile comes before this Jew. And then Peter says something that's remarkable that informs our understanding of race and in particular culture today that we find ourselves in. Look in verse 34. So Peter opens his mouth talking to Cornelius and he says this, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, notice what it says, is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus. So what does all that mean? And what is all that ultimately pointing us to today in this understanding? Because there's a lot of things that happen. Cornelius is sent by God. Peter enters into a trance. He sees this weird vision, rise up, kill and eat. Peter knows he's forbidden to do that. Cornelius comes on the scene as a Gentile and Peter's going, wait a minute, all this stuff is making sense. That God is no longer distinguishing between preferences of, of Jew versus Gentile, but rather God is including all people for his kingdom. Now this is something that should be helpful for us and informative for us today. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. What I believe Acts chapter 10 is teaching us today is this, God's redemptive work includes the idea that God is all about breaking down racial barriers to bring people who are far apart to bring them back together again. What God is doing in this moment with Peter and as Cornelius comes to the scene, a Gentile who doesn't know things the way in which Peter understands them, God is teaching this transformative idea 
that in the midst of his redemptive work, he is bringing together people of different tribes and nations and tongues for his namesake and his glory. And he is doing away ultimately with these racial barriers that have been established early on in the church and throughout Judaism. Now for us to fully understand that, I told you just a minute ago that we're gonna jump into Genesis chapter 11. And if you wanna turn there just very quickly, if not, I'll have it up on the screen, but to understand this idea that our, our, our understanding of Acts 10 is really based on what we see happen in Genesis 11 and then the promise given in Genesis 12. If you look at Genesis 11, we see the story of the Tower of Babel. And many of us are familiar with this story, but in Genesis chapter 11, verse one, the text reads like this. Now the whole earth had one language and they were using the same words. So they spoke clearly to one another and everybody understood one another. Part of the problem with our political climate right now is that no matter what words we use, we have to peel back the layers of the meanings of the word to try to understand what it is that we're talking about. So when we hear words on social media like justice, well, what do we mean by justice? Are we talking about biblical justice? Are we talking about political justice, worldly justice? When we hear terms like white privilege or systemic racism, what do those words mean? And, and the problem that's going on right now is to every person, those words absolutely mean different degrees of things. And so we're back to this scenario of Genesis 11 where we don't have the same language and, and commonality, but rather we understand terms quite differently. And so I wanna give you just a little bit of, a, of advice that if Jesus was here, he would, he would say this, that probably Jesus said somewhere that the most awful place to enter into a debate, theologically, politically, whatever it is, the very worst place to do that is on social media, said Jesus probably, okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you, I've never changed my position or moved someone because of a social media post by someone else. It ends up being I'm just preaching to my tribe and my, my crowd and they're liking whatever it is that I'm saying or whatever it is someone else is saying. I was giving advice to a college student this past week and uh, they're, they're traveling off and going and they were, we were talking about where to, where to go to a church in their college town. And, uh, and I've added something recently within the past year that I've not normally said before. I said, listen, um, you ought to find a church that believes the Bible is the word of God and the preacher uh, preaches the word of God and there's good worship. But, the, but the, one of the fifth or sixth things you should do on that list, you need to go find your pastor or that pastor's perspective social media account. And you need to troll through his Twitter account and his Facebook account, and you need to see how he's behaving and how he's acting online. And the reason why I say that is because I've seen some very, very poor behavior from pastors and ministers and Christians who identify with the name of Jesus, but even in those pastors, they're not acting like it on social media. And they're trying to argue and they're trying to contend for certain things, all the while, nobody knows the words that they mean and really what tribe or camp they're coming from unless you do the research. And so just a bit of advice. Be careful that you're not pressured into making statements on social media, but it is much more effective to come alongside someone at a table and just sit and talk and seek understanding from where they are and, 
and where you are than Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever else is out there. I know there's something else coming up. But the whole earth had one language and the same words. But if we keep going in Genesis 11, look down in verse four and he says this, but then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, there are one people, they have all one language, but this is only the beginning of what they're gonna do. Therefore, verse seven, come let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So I want to be crystal clear on, on what just happens in Genesis 11. God disperses the people and he confuses the language, not because God just decided to do that, but rather because what we see here in the text in verse four, they were seeking to make a name for themselves rather than a name for God. And so God has a way of humbling us when we are solely and only about our own kingdoms and not about his kingdom. God will change and he will allow things to happen, oftentimes in our midst, to get our attention. And what you have here in Genesis 11, this is when you begin to see the, the, the divergence and the differences of the cultures begin to deviate, not because of God, but rather because they sought to do something for their own sake and to make a name for themselves. And so God, in a way, he disciplines them, separates them, scatters the speeches and divides them and lets them really culminate. The thing that they, they wanted to do was to make a name for themselves. They end up dividing up into these tribes and these nations and these different tongues and, and they begin to not understand each other anymore. Now, Genesis 11 is a dreadful passage full of despair. But I want you to see in the context of Genesis 11, what happens in Genesis 12. And then this brings us back to Acts chapter 10. If you keep reading and you, and you, and you get through 11 and you get to 12, you get to what's known as the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12. It's one of the most important promises in all of scripture where the Lord says to Abram in verse one of Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you. And he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So here's the connection, here's the tie-in. We're, we're doing a little bit of biblical theology at this point. The tie-in is this, God scatters the nations at the Tower of Babel. But then he gives the promise of the hope of the gospel that all people are ultimately going to be blessed through Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, which is fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus. So when we see this moment in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius comes and, and he sees Peter and Peter has this vision and all of a sudden he makes the statement that God shows no partiality anymore. Peter begins to understand the promise that was given to Abraham. And what this teaches us is what we said earlier, that God is in the business of breaking down racial barriers to bring people back together. This is what Acts 10 is all about. It's about God um, seeing what he did in Genesis 11, 
promising that he's going to restore it in Genesis 12. And then in Acts 10, we see the fulfillment of that promise where all of a sudden the light bulb goes off in Peter's head and he's like, look what God is doing. He's showing no partiality. He's fulfilling the very promise that he said he was going to fulfill all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And so here's the application for the church this morning. Here's the application for for us individually. Here's here's why we go Acts 10, then we jump to Genesis 11, then go to 12, and then we jump back to 10 to see the larger story in the midst of this really small one is we see this notion of application for the church is that when we pursue racial diversity, it is a way that we bear witness to the gospel. It's a way that we display the gospel. When there are, are multiple tribes and nations and tongues, when there are, are people groups of, that are black and that are white, that, that are Hispanic, purple, brown, and blue, all of the different peoples that God has made, it's a way that we put on display the gospel of Jesus. It's a way that we embrace God's mission for the church when we look different, not when we look the same. Now, I used to believe for a long time that the idea of God doing away with, with Gentile and, and Jew, there's just one in Christ, that, that it meant that I had to ignore the, the differences that existed within the life of a person. And oftentimes we will make this statement that um, God is, is colorblind and we should be colorblind, that, that we shouldn't uh, pay attention to any of that. And I often hear that from well-meaning people, and I've even said this, but, but here's what I've come to conclude. When we pretend that that we're not different, when we pretend that we're just all the same, we end up minimizing the creativity of our God, understanding that, listen, God has made us to look and to act and to think differently. And when we are being controlled and compelled by the gospel, it doesn't mean that we are blind to the differences, but rather what it means is we get to celebrate them. And we get to understand that God has uniquely made us and he has brought us together as a body with different experiences and and even preferences and, and the colors of our skin that we get to celebrate those. It doesn't mean that we look down upon someone or that we think that we're better than someone because of how we look. It doesn't mean that you get a position of leadership because of this or or you don't because of that. It doesn't mean that you get partiality because of this or we show no partiality because of that. But when the gospel has controlled us, listen, when Jesus is controlling us, we get to celebrate the fact that we are different people. And the gospel of Jesus doesn't call us to just pretend that we're all the same. Because you know and I know we're not. Oftentimes we find ourselves in the midst worshiping next to people that have different values than us. They think differently politically, perhaps economically. They have different styles and preferences of of worship, how they manifest and display those things. And and oftentimes we're told that, that your preferences shouldn't matter. But I wanna tell you this, and maybe this is freeing to you, maybe this just confuses you. I'll be available for counseling after this. It's okay for you to have preferences, okay? It's not wrong. It's fine to have preferences. The problem comes when our preferences get in the way of the mission. 
And our mission is to see people far from God come to know Christ. And when I'm holding on to my preferences to the point where I'm not seeing people that are far from God come to know him, then I need to reevaluate how tightly I'm holding on to my preferences. But it's okay that I have those things at times, just as long as they're not getting in the, the way of me making much of Jesus and, and what it is that he wants me to do. I wish I would have said this first and read it from someone years ago. I've heard it paraphrased by several others. And so this is sort of my paraphrase to this. But when it comes to the idea of race, racism is first and foremost a sin problem. It's not a skin problem. It's a sin issue. It's not about valuing or devaluing or what this person is or what this person is. It has to do with what's in the recesses of my heart and the dark corners of my heart. Where is it do I feel like I'm superior because I'm, and I'll just say it, I'm, I'm, I've told y'all this and told this group this, I'm, I'm, this is almost blasphemous to some people, but you, you understand what I'm saying, I'm more proud to be a Texan than I am anything else. Like at times my wife is like, you need to slow the roll of, of being proud. You're, you're an American and, and you're a Texan. Yeah, but I'm a Texan, okay? Like that's the flag I wanna fly um, out, out in front of my house. I'm really proud to be a Texan. And, and listen, there is a little bit of bias here. Texans, we are far better than anyone from Oklahoma and California. Like, let's just say it. I know I have California people that are here right now. Like, we're better than Oklahoma as well. Like, who would wanna live? My, one of my best friends lives in Oklahoma. I don't understand why. Don't understand what's wrong with him, what he's thinking. I think he's leading his family poorly. And I don't believe God called him there. I really don't. It's awful. But when it comes to the sin of race, it's a, it's a sin issue, not, not a skin issue. And here's been my prayer all week for me and, and my prayer for our church as we sort of seek to navigate this, this stuff. Because listen, racial issues are not going away anytime soon. In fact, they're only going to continually be inflamed. Now I want to connect, as I've tried to do, connecting Genesis 11 and 12 to Acts 10. And, and one of the reasons why I want to do that on a broader 3,000 scale foot level is this. I think the dispersion of the people in Genesis 11 and then the hope of the promise in Genesis 12 through Abraham is the connection to the fact that, that one of the problems that we see politically in this climate by way of application is we see a whole bunch of tearing down things right now. Tearing down the, the government, the, the systems that are in place, and, and some of them certainly need to be reevaluated and, and reapplied, and, and there's always room for improvement and, and for growth, but, but the idea is that we're tearing things down, but here's the problem and where it misses the message of Genesis 11 and 12 and in the hope of Acts 10. Everybody wants to tear things down. Nobody's talking about how to build those things back up. And so what happens is when you're constantly critiquing and you're constantly picking at, whether it be political systems or parties or whatever those structures are, but we're giving no roadmap or blueprint and how to build those things back up, or maybe we are, but we've become like the people in Genesis 11, we are building it up in our own eyes. And the way we personally want to see those things to grow. Yeah, I almost fell. Sorry, I made it. Somebody told me last week, every time you walk near the edge, I just go like, he's going to go down at some point. It almost just happened. But we see these people that are trying to navigate these things and to tear them down constantly with no, no plan to build them back up. 
And here's, here's the hope of the gospel that, that at least we, we should sort of embrace these things, that as we pursue diversity and as we pursue reconciliation, we want to see people reconciled with God, which would include when we're rightly working with God, that we are reconciled with other brothers and sisters that look different than us. So here's one of the ways we do that at Travis. Over the past uh, week and a half, um, I can't tell you how many hours I've been involved in the conversations. We, we, you know that Terry Coy, one of our elders, uh, has been doing interim uh, work for us with Travis and Espanol. And we, we've been looking, we've been waiting on the Lord to lead us and we try to be very patient. And we spent this past week, uh, we spent numerous hours, Terry and I did, I did individually, our elders did. And, and we think that in the next two weeks, we're about to, to put a call on a young man's life to get him to come to, to Travis to be our next pastor of, of Travis and Espanol. And so one of the ways that we celebrate and pursue diversity and, and pursue reconciliation is that we believe that Travis and Espanol is an integral part in who Travis Avenue Baptist Church is. And I want to be clear on what I just said by the way that I said it. Travis and Espanol, this is a shift for us as a church. They are no longer a mission component of Travis. Something that we just do on the side so that we're pursuing those types of things. One of the, the conversations that we have had over and over and over again about what does Travis and Espanol, what role do they play here? Listen, they are Travis, we are them. That's a shift in some of our mindsets. They're not a missions outreach because guess what? Our community, our state, our country, the Hispanic population is growing at an astronomical rate. And so they're gonna have the same bylaws as we do. They have the same six or seven elders as we do. Uh, they talk about core values the same way we do. They have the same mission and vision. We're gonna preach similar sermons on Sundays. And you wanna look at it in the context that we have a traditional service. We have a contemporary service. And we have a Spanish-speaking service. But they are Travis and we are them. And we want to make sure that we solidify our foot and we want to make sure that we shift a mindset that we've had over the years and the decades that they're just a missions component. No, they are Travis and, and we are them. Same budget, same values, same people. And they serve alongside of us. And we have some work to do on some of us and just, just knowing them and loving them and, and serving them. But it's a way that we will display the gospel. I believe it's a blueprint for our church moving forward and how we will eventually walk down the line of planting other churches that, that yes, may look a little bit different than us and, and maybe have a different context of worship than us, but they are still us and we are them. Here's my challenge for you today. There are some of you that are here today and are watching online and you've never been reconciled with God. You would be what we would consider far from God. Maybe you believe there is a God, but you don't know really who that is. You, you're doubtful that maybe it's, it's the God of, of this book, of this Bible, and, and you don't really know him. Our prayer for you this week, we've had people praying for you, that you would come to know Jesus as, as we do. That you would come and, and taste and see that the Lord, he is good. 
But for those of you that that know Jesus, here's your application, here's your invitation. And it's the same invitation that I give in myself every day this week as I have anxiously walked up to this day to preach this message in Acts 10, which I've dreaded, but then I've longed for because of the difficulty and the issues that are involved with it. It's a simple prayer. God, would you show me where in my heart that I feel and act, or even I don't know, that I feel superior over other people and races because of, of the color of my skin. Whether you're black, brown, or white, whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in the middle of that, it's just an honest question. God, just show me. And, and here's the deal. If you, if you pray that, God's, God's gonna do some work on you this week. Just like he did some work on me this week. It's okay to to be proud of who you are. You don't have to feel guilty that God made you the way that you did. You don't have to wish you were a different color or or, or looked a different type or or were born someone else. The Bible says that God appoints the time for, for man to live and to be born and to die. He made you exactly like he wanted you to be. Lean into that. At the same time, ask God, how you can pursue the gospel, how you can pursue Jesus with people that are different than you. My dream for this church over the next 20 and 30 years is that our church would continually shift to look more and more like the community around us. And I'm not just talking about the two miles around us. I'm talking about all of Tarrant County that our church would shift and navigate because we reach and want to see people of every tribe, nation, and tongue come to know him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us Jesus and the good news of the gospel to shape us and to change us. We pray that those that are far from you today would come to know you, would repent of their sins and confess that you are are just and, and willing to forgive them of their sins. And that, Lord, you would receive them into your kingdom at this moment. Lord, I pray for the heart of our church now that we would seek you honestly and clearly, that we would ask, Lord, just show us where we need to pursue these things with a greater degree of, of intensity or, and just shed light on our hearts. We know that racism will will always exist this side of of eternity because sin will always exist this side of eternity. And whether it's us or our neighbor or someone we have not yet met, we, we know that you alone can change the hearts of man. And so Lord, we pray that you would begin with us and that you would change us as you see fit. Father, have your way in these closing moments Let us make much of you, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said. I'm gonna invite you to stand and respond in in a time of song. I'll be down front. Matt Getty is gonna be down front with me. We'd love to pray for you, pray over you. If you need counsel, uh, we'd love to visit with you about how we can meet a need in your life as we pursue the person of Jesus together.